I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson uh, episode I don't even know anymore. Uh, so, okay, we've got a lot of stuff to get to today, but before we do that, I wanted to remind everybody that I'm going to be at the International Christian Film Festival uh, the last weekend of April, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that. I don't have the information in front of me, but I will be there uh there will be a, a table for more than one lesson where you can come up and say hello and look at the various uh, things that I have chosen to pack um, and take to and lug all the way to Orlando. Um, but then also, I will be doing a seminar, a 45-minute seminar called Speaking the Language of Film, which I'm very excited about uh, and actually a little bit nervous about now that I'm, now that I'm saying it out loud. Um, and so if you live in Orlando or in the surrounding area, shoot me an email, Tyler at more than one lesson.com. Let me know, uh, if you're around, if you're interested in going, because frankly, I will need someone to help me man the table, uh, especially when I'm giving a seminar or I can just leave it. Uh, you know, if people steal stuff off the table, then that's on their, that's on their conscience. It's a, it's a Christian film festival. Um, but yeah, so Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Let me know if you're around because I also just enjoy meeting listeners because uh, it gives me a nice ego boost and then I re- then eventually I just let them down uh, as I do with all my friends, including today's co-host. It's Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? Hi, Tyler. I'm doing fine. Oh, good. And I'm not let down. Well, I'm not inspired yet. inspired by you. That can't possibly be true. <laughs> you're saying it with a big uh, coquettish grin on your face. Um, so, okay. I'm nothing if I'm not coquettish. That's true. It almost sounded like you said cokeheadish. Coke? I thought that's what you said. No, I said... I've like, never had coke in my life. Okay. It's not bad. I mean, it... Oh, shoot. The mic's... Okay. Oh. It's terrible, and I don't recommend it. Good boy. I'm joking, of course. I have never done a single drug in my life. Nor um, I. All right. Boring guys unite. <laughs> wow. So, Okay. So, what are we talking about here? I'll tell you what we're talking about. There's an episode I've been looking forward to for the last several weeks. Uh, Why didn't I do it several weeks ago? Because we were in the midst of Oscar stuff. We did Mm. episodes about Spotlight and Room and Inside Out and Bridge of Spies. Obligatory episodes. Uh, Not really. It's more just, I I get very much in the spirit of award season and and I wanted to, what? Why are you making fun of me for that? I'm not. I'm I'm inspired by you, Tyler. (laughs) I'm inspired by your dedication to the Oscars, frankly. I guess so, yeah. I don't care much. In the end, I don't care much about the Oscars. I, I'm interested in them as a snapshot of the time. Sure. You know, especially with what wins Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, Spotlight. Spotlight won, uh, which actually surprised me because it only won one other award. But we already talked about that last week. Um, so, and then also, we would have done this episode a couple weeks ago, except Risen came out and people uh. were saying were asking me to do an episode about it. So, uh, and then stay tuned we may or may not do an episode episode about God's Not Dead 2. It depends on how well it does in the box mm. office. Uh, Josh does not want to see it. I am making him see it if it does well at the box office. This is why you inspire me, because you're able to manipulate people's lives. Like, I don't want to do this, but they do it for yeah, you. Yeah, it is kind of funny the way that happens. Uh, it's, uh, you know, just... The things you guys will do to, to, to be on the show, to, you know, to get in front of the mic. To get, to get you to like us. To get, uh, is that, is that the goal? Cause I think only Reed is accomplishing it. Ooh. I'm joking. Of I think course. we're about 60, 65% there. 
Maybe this will push me over the 70 mark. Maybe. That's up to you. Don't mm-hmm. let me down. I'm so nervous. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, all right. So what we're talking about is the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, mm. a film that I had, uh, that like many, I saw a trailer for several months ago, was kind of excited about it. I will say I was also a little bit nervous about it. Not nervous, but um, wary. Uh Going in, uh, I went to a critic screening and very, I was very excited to go to that. And just as the movie was starting, I, I realized, oh yeah, this could be a mess. This could be the Coen brothers just being kind of goofy and silly after making a series of very serious films. Maybe they're going to do another Burn After Reading or uh, Intolerable Cruelty or something like that. It looks like it's going to be a big spectacle, but maybe that's all it will be. Uh, thankfully I was 100% wrong. Well, I was correct that it was a big spectacle, but, and just because it was showy, just because it was, um, I don't know, goofy at times and, and, uh, a comedy, I'd say first and foremost, uh, that does not mean that there's no, that there is no depth to it. I think there's quite a bit of depth to it. And, What's interesting for me, and this is not a thing I say very often, I don't say it lightly. Uh, so I was looking at, I was looking at larger reviews of the film, and I, I'll, Robert, I'll bring you in in a moment to get your take on this because I'm curious. Uh, I was looking at reviews of the film, and most people liked it, but there was there are some people that thought it was only okay. There are some people that thought it was. Uh, anti-religion or at least mocking of religion um because you know it's hail caesar a tale of the christ and Mm -hmm. and where we see religious leaders the main character regularly goes to confession uh there's a lot of uh christians uh iconography and and that sort of thing so uh but it's in the midst of this goofy farce uh and so i a lot of people thought that it was just sort of a it wasn't meant to be primarily a takedown of religion but that it wound up being that uh, I could not disagree more. And what I will say, and this is the thing that I don't say lightly. Every once in a while, there will be a movie that comes out that I will see. And I, as I watch it and as I react to it, I find that I'm very, uh, very thankful in that moment to be a Christian because and and honestly, the kind of Christian that does a show like this, because I think it allowed me to see the film. Honestly, I think the way the Coen brothers meant it. I think a lot of people think of the Coen brothers as cynical filmmakers who couldn't possibly make a movie that is in favor of religion um, or at least favorable to it. And so they they look at that and then they see the cynicism that is there and they, they mistake the whole thing for that. But when I look at the Coen brothers and the, the way they depict religion or faith in general in films like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And especially A Serious Man, mm-hmm. which that one do, does certainly have a cynical edge to it. Uh, but then a film like this, I see them as being in sympathy with religion and maybe even wanting it to be true, whether they believe it is or not. Uh, and it's just a, a thing I find fascinating and very few other film, uh, very few other critics, uh, 
felt that way. Meanwhile, when I talk to a number of my Christian friends who don't even identify as critics, they absolutely said what I said. And maybe I'm just bringing my own baggage to it, but I'm usually pretty good at knowing when a film is uh, anti-religion at mm-hmm. this point. And I got none of that from this film. Uh, I got, I think, a fairly clear-eyed view of religion. And and that's actually not necessarily what, what the theme of this episode is going to be. But... Um, but yeah, a lot of my friends said, yeah, that's absolutely what I got. Uh, and then other Christian podcasts that kind of do what we do sort of felt the same thing. So it's very odd that 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 a lot of the, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of the critics that are not Christian saw the little bit of cynicism in the film and just painted the whole film with that brush as opposed to looking at it the way I think the Coen brothers actually looked at it, which was much more nuanced. Now, that's my that's a that's that's obviously not my opinion of the whole film. I'll get more specific in, in a moment, but that's my that was a reaction that I had uh and that I thought was interesting when I saw what other how other critics responded to it. Did you Robert Hornack? That's me. Uh did you have a similar response when you saw it? Did you have any kind of spiritual reaction to it? I mean, honestly, I didn't. Um, okay. I think as a Christian, going, perhaps you're not a Christian. Maybe I'm not. I'll, uh, hold, I'll you be quiet. I'll host this alone. Maybe I'm not a Coen Brothers fan either. Uh, I'm mm. definitely both. Um, no, I I think that I went into the movie uh, kind of like you did, expecting a certain kind of thing. You know, like a certain there are certain expectations with regard to the Coen Brothers. Like there's, um, I guess, what I would call um, like a slide rule cinema. It's like everything mm-hmm. has to be perfect, or everything is perfect to them. They right. just naturally are. Uh, extremely careful with with uh, composition, mm-hmm. editing, all of those things, and I felt like that this in dialogue. Uh, I felt like in this case, the movie kind of left me feeling like it had been somewhat of a failure in those terms. Hmm. I mean, not dialogue wise. The dialogue is fantastic. It's yeah. pure Coen Brothers dialogue. It's crackling, crackling. It's cracking. Um, but it felt to me like I mean, what I came away from. I saw it with a friend of mine. And the thing that we kind of zeroed in on as we were walking away was, wow, it felt like a bunch of giant pieces of movies kind of ill-fitted together. Um, this, the stuff about, you know, religion or about, about the fact that the movie was uh, Hail Caesar, A Tale of the Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, at first I thought, I, I sort of put up a wall at first. I was like, um, am, I, am I offended by this? Is this supposed to be offending me? I never felt offended by that. Mm-hmm. I felt, if anything, like the movie, the Coen brothers and the movie, were very clear that they were making fun of the process of making that kind of movie. Sure. And even the scene where they bring in the, the clerics, and they're all sitting around the conference room. It's a great scene. A great, great scene. Great written scene. Yeah. And they're, they're battling uh, over like the import of this or that with regard to how the, the Christ is depicted. Yeah. Of course, the, the, the Jewish rabbi is saying, well, he's not even a, a divine figure. Yeah. Um, and the others are saying, well, of course he is, but he represents this part of God. Well, what do you mean this part of God? Well, look, God is divided into yeah. three. And then so it becomes sort of a, an ad hoc kind of uh, uh, dialectic on exactly what religion is or this religion versus this religion. Yeah. Meanwhile, Josh Brolin's character, Mannix, is just sort of left kind of floating in the in the conversation, like, oh, uh, all I wanted to know is, like, uh, am I doing right? Is it, yeah. is it a good character? Um, that scene also does have one of my... The way the Cohen... Uh, being Jewish themselves, the way Cohen brothers write mm-hmm. Jews is something I find infinitely fascinating. And the way they write the rabbi in that, and just a guy who... Because as they're talking about the idea of... of 
God, uh, not necessarily like being married, but, uh, you know, having a son and that sort of thing. Um, uh, the Jew, uh, the, the, the rabbi says something to the effect of, it's like, it's like, no, God was not, uh, did not get together with anybody. He is a single man and very angry. Yes. <laughs> Just a wonderful, a wonderful line, beautifully delivered. Yeah. It's like, you can tell that like, that is a Cohen, mm-hmm. Like he, that's a character and a line straight out of a serious man. Sure. And it's, it's a, it's oh, totally. hilarious to me. Had not made that connection, but yes, you're right. Um, but I think, I mean, and the overall f- thought that I have on the movie is that it's, it's a movie that's sort of taking aim. I mean, satire is, is you know, definitionally is taking aim at some institution mm-hmm. and showing you kind of what's maybe wrong with it or what is weak about it or how it, is, it doesn't function anymore in a modern world or whatever it is. And this movie kind of takes on several things, political ideology and communism mm-hmm. versus capitalism, uh, religious institutions in, in the form of these guys kind of coming in and being uh, asked what they think of the movie. Um, and and how a movie movie company works. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an institution as well. And that's the one that it mostly makes fun of, if you want to say that it's making sure. fun of anything. I never felt, coming away from it, I mean, you would think the two Christians going in to see this movie – uh, their their first conversation would be about oh is it are they making fun of me are they uh, uh, are they kind of sides are you just using my faith as a tool to get laughs right. and I I do not think that I don't think that at all I don't know that I came away with it as uh, with as profound a feeling that they were validating it as you seem to have had it's I mean validating it doesn't even seem right to me but I would say again sympathetic I think they are sympathetic to the faith of Eddie Mannix. Um, especially in that scene where he's, he is nothing if not sincere. Like you would think that just the way, you know, the job he has, the way Josh Brolin plays him, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that the character's somewhat based on a real Eddie Mannix, uh, who is actually kind of a slime ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would think that the character would be very cynical who would maybe use faith only as a way of getting of making money or whatever but in that scene he does seem to really want to get this right he does and by bringing in these people for whom maybe the concept of by bringing in organized religion his very sincere and organic faith became more confused so i think they definitely have that's a really good point I feel like in general, they have a feeling, uh, a suspicion of institutions. Right. Um, but I think they see his faith as a very genuine and admirable thing. You know, my, my uh, walk again, walking out of the theater, my initial reaction was, it was kind of a mess. It felt like it wasn't cohesive. If mm-hmm. I can use that word. It sounds a little pretentious, but it didn't feel like it all came together. And I think that was just a function of the fact that the Coen brothers found a vehicle by which or through which they could kind of parody, they're, they're supreme parodists anyway mm-hmm. throughout their career, but uh, for parodying these old style movies that they yeah. grew up loving. Um, and so, you know, you have you have the, the mermaid story here, yeah. you, you have the cowboy picture here, you have the sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, British draw, drawing room sort yeah. of drama here with Ray Fiennes directing, and you have all these things and it feels like those are fun kind of while you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you stand back or when you walk away, when I walked away from the movie and I just sort of looked at the picture that my mind took of it, I was like, Ooh, it feels kind of forced. But as the days went by, it's been a, probably about what, three weeks or so since I've seen the movie. Um, as the days went by and I would reflect on it, I really appreciated the fact that my memory of the movie, uh, was more cohesive because of the very quiet question mark over, 
Mannix's life mm-hmm. that he's carrying through from the very first scene of the movie where he's in the uh, in the confessional. Yeah, and of course the Coens find a way to make it funny because the the priest is like, "You were just here like yesterday. You yeah. don't, there, surely you couldn't have done anything else to confess." And he's like, "Well, I feel bad. I, I've been I've been trying really hard." I think he said. So it just feels like a it feels like a theme is being presented in that yeah. scene, and it's a funny scene, but it's also an earnest scene from his perspective because he really does want to a quit smoking, b be with his wife more, yeah. C, run this company good or yeah. well. And he, he wants to do all these things, and he's a very earnest person. And then every time you kind of come back to Mannix and his very uh, low-simmering spiritual plight throughout the movie, which is sort of between these big, garish, fun parodies, yeah, it feels like a real movie. It's like a movie, a real movie walking in between all these big, garish things and so that actually does make it cohesive it's like of course the way i felt about the movie walking out of the theater is how he feels about his life through most of the movie it's like i'm trying to live this real life i'm trying to connect with a real person in my own home yeah i'm trying to find the goodness inside of these actors you know that are trying their best to make are these directors that are trying to to make art Mm -hmm. you know you can talk about the quality of that art you know, sure. it's another conversation but they're still trying to do something and make money yes um, but through all of that is his little question like am I am I doing the right thing is no. this a frivolous you know world that I've chosen to live in from 6 in the morning to 10pm at night yeah. every single day of my life is it worth it is it should I take this other job yeah. and all these things and so I may be overstepping into too much theme by saying that but I really love the fact that the movie now, in my mind, is so much stronger because that quiet vibe, that thread through the whole movie, is actually what the movie was. Yeah, and I think that's that's what got me, is that uh, I think a lot of people view the film as an ensemble film. And if you look at it as, look at it as an ensemble, then it is a mess. Yeah, absolutely. But there is a lead. And he has an arc mm-hmm. and he is, he's not in every scene, but he's the one we return to over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is the one witnessing this scene, you know, this goofy thing, that goofy thing. Uh, and the goofiness of the mermaid scene and the, uh, the, the sailor musical mm-hmm. sequence, um, the goofiness of that, they need to be, I, I'm not sure if I would venture, uh, I don't know if I would say parody. I don't think they're parody. I think they're loving homage with the benefit of hindsight that like a lot of these are movies that aren't really made anymore. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're self-serious. Sometimes they're overly silly. Sometimes it's just about spectacle. Well, uh, but yeah. And so I think those need to be heightened because if they, if we saw that each of these was actually, you know, if one of them was singing in the rain and one was, you know, uh, separate tables or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, movies that are good, then, and why would, why would we ever ask if his life is frivolous, if he is helping Making to make, films. helping to make these level of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course in the midst of it, he is also working towards making a movie of actual, in his view, value, mm-hmm. which is Hail Caesar. Right. Um, and when we look back on Spartacus and Ben-Hur and Spartacus is not a tale of the Christ, but, yeah. uh, you know, movies like that, 10 Probably Commandments. the only one of its kind in that era that wasn't about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was the companion film for Risen, uh, oh, which right, we talked right. about recently. Uh, but yeah, so we look at the, the goofy, silly things, the things that quote unquote don't matter. 
uh, as, okay, if I keep these going, these are the money makers. And with that money, I will be able to produce something of value. And when that something, and he's probably hinging, not probably, he's definitely hinging too much on the thing that is valuable. And I think his arc is such that by the end, he, he sees the value in all of it. And I think a good portion of that has to do with the fact that he is interacting pretty regularly with Hobie. Uh, the the young cowboy, right? Who is? I think Josh Brolin does a great job. I think everybody does a great job, but I think the standout is that character Hobie, mm-hmm. played by a guy whose name is Odd, Alden uh, Ehrenreich, or something he, like he that. Was in a, I just read this this morning. He was in actually in Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen movie, as a, just in a small role. Oh, okay. And yeah, I don't else. recall him. Yeah, he's but, been he's 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 been in a bunch of stuff. Um, but I feel like this is definitely the thing that could, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, launch his career, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, you have you're talking about like this very small, quiet thing. And then with the Hobie character who can be silly in the movies that he's in, mm-hmm. but there's a real humility to him. Yeah. And when you look at these two as Hobie is not a lead, he's definitely supporting. But when you look at these two and we tend to look at Hollywood through these guys eyes, I don't know. There's there's a real a th- in Hobie. There's a thankfulness that he's there yeah. at all and a real desire to work hard. And, and even right. in the crappy movies he's making, put out, the, you know, have it be the best quality he can make and rise, rise to the suggestion of something he feels like he, he's not suited for at all. Literally yeah. not suited for. Yeah. And and saying okay, well I'll do that. You know, yeah. okay, show me where to go. And he yeah. goes. Uh, I I love the fact that he, Josh Brolin, obviously is the main character. He has mm-hmm. the arc, like you said. Um, but if there's a surrogate in this movie for the audience, even though he's not in every scene, it would be Hobie. Yeah. Because Hobie is that earnest guy that you would think that you are, that you would hope to be. Yeah. If you were in his position, it's like a guy who's from nowhere thrown into this position where you know he can make it or break it and he's just so glad that he's there it's like every yeah. single thing he does he looks at and goes you know i'm just i don't even know why i'm here but yeah. i sure am glad i am yeah um and you want to be that guy and he's looking at he gets to look at josh brolin yeah like we do and he goes you know he's like looking at him like why are you so tense you know why are you what's going on in your world why why are you so upset what, what's on your mind you seem kind of heavy heavy hearted um and that's how we're looking at him as well yeah so yeah, like I say, if anyone if anyone is a surrogate for the for us in the movie, it would be Hobie. It's a good guy, good character. It's a it's a great character, and it's it's kind of interesting to me that he's the only actor in the film that is not a name. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he will be. I think he has a great future in front of him, but it seems somehow appropriate that the actor playing Hobie is not someone we know. Mm-hmm. No baggage. We know everybody else. I mean, this this film is packed with actual movie stars, even in small roles like Jonah Hill, you know, Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. George Clooney. It's a supporting performance. Tatum it's not Channing, a what? Tatum. Yeah, what? Tatum, Tatum Channing? Is that what? I Channing said? Tatum. Channing there we go. What did I say? I, th- I don't know what you said. Tatum O'Neill. Did I say Tatum O'Neill? Tatum. That's the one. Um, side note, listeners, go see Paper Moon if you never have. It's that's marvelous. A great movie. Uh, Actual father daughter. That's yes. Uh, that is not the companion film. Um, so we're moving into specific things that that we liked or, or didn't like about the film. I, for the most part, liked. I don't know if I'd say it. Certainly, is not a perfect film. Um, I liked a lot about it. Um, I like it more now than when I first saw it, and I liked a, I liked it a lot when I first saw it. Um, I appreciate 
it's I, I feel like it it juggles everything very well, probably because we have that through line of the Josh Brolin character. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see so many different types of things. We see him dealing with executives, him dealing with gossip colonists, uh, columnists, uh, him dealing with movie stars. And then in the midst of all this, there's al- also an actual crisis going on where his his lead star has been kidnapped, you know, by a, by a bunch of communists. Right. Um, and then those scenes are also very interesting. Um, and cause we're, we're allowed to see, uh, a good portion of the communists trying to convince George Clooney who plays a, a delightfully dim character, mm-hmm. which he very, does very well, which he does very well. And he's For very easily, easily manipulated. Um, and then I do, and this will probably get more into the theme, but I do like that there's, there's, there's also sort of a ticking clock element in that there's an offer on the table for right. Eddie Mannix from Lockheed um, that would basically guarantee him a ton of money with a minimum amount of work for the rest of his life. Um, and so, but the offer's not going to be there forever. And, there's, and they keep lies, sweetening the deal. Therein lies a spiritual crisis because he's yeah. like, well, should I give up this yeah. thing that I really do well? But is that? But it, that is extremely stressful. Yeah. It's always teetering on on the verge of collapse. Yeah, and it's ruining my family life. Yeah, but it would it would be so easy. But the question to the priest is: Is that okay? Is it okay if I go to something that I know that I'm really good at, even though it's e- essentially it's easy because he loves it? Yeah, me, me and the filmmaking. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's and yeah, that will definitely get us into the theme. Um, I'm trying to think if there's if there's more specific things. I mean, it's the Coens. I think it's I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautifully shot. I uh, love the score, of course. It's Carter Burwell. Mm-hmm. Um, I could talk about a lot of the performances, but you have a list. Well, let's let me let's, let me let's check on off. a few of these anyway. Okay. I like the fact that it's just essentially a comic retooling of Barton Fink. I mean, you're even at the same Capitol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're at Capitol and. It's that same world. It's not quite the same era because I think Barton Fink was more like the 40s. 40s, yeah. And this is set, I believe, in 51, 52, somewhere in there. Okay. Sort of actually toward the end of the the studio system. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for film geeks, you know, film history geeks, it's like it adds an extra layer of, of kind of meaning because he's, he's at that stage in cinema mm-hmm. when the studio system that he is representing or that his job is representing is actually on, on the verge of collapse you know independent uh, actors are going independent uh, smaller studios are st- starting to take yeah. over and and so there literally is collapse around him historically speaking and what's interesting thinking along those lines because i did have the thought of like well what is the future for eddie mannix he's in the studio system mm-hmm. now but then i realized like well he's tremendously capable and he does genuinely want to make valuable films and he is a lower level executive mm-hmm. um, he has to answer to whatever his name is in new york right. constantly and so i had the thought it's like i'll bet once the studio system collapses i bet he will land on his feet and could actually start his own studio right. again because he cares about the product mm-hmm. um, and that makes all the difference in the world I love the fact that the uh, it's the Cohen brothers, so they're going to be good at this anyway. But just yeah. their ear for like fake movie names. Oh, you know, love I mean, it. from wall to wall, it's like uh, came the rain, Neptune's daughter, merrily we dance, yeah. all the way to Uruguay, which is obviously a, a, one of the writers, one of the communist writers says, "I've written all the all the way movies." You know, it's yeah. just a very funny line, uh, which is obviously a riff on uh, road, uh, road the road to, movies, yeah. road to Utopia, all those kind of things. 
Um, great year for fake dialogue. And I wrote this one down because I loved it so much. It's actually fake dialogue within the fake movie, within Hail Caesar. Yeah. Um, Rome, suckled by a she-wolf and nurturing us, her sons in turn. Tonight I bathe in Caracalla and wash away the dust of 300 miles of Frankish road. To Rome! To Rome! <laughs> and it's just chocolate. Anytime it goes to a movie, mm. within the movie, it's stuff like that. And, yeah. and the Coens clearly love this stuff. It's not, I think it's like you said, I, I called it parodies. I call them parodies. And they are, in a sense, because you're, in a sense, you're kind of supposed to laugh at them. Yeah. They'll laugh at their quaintness, if anything. Yeah. Um, but they're also... Very loving homages. I mean, they're done exactly like those films would have been made. Yeah, and that shows their their own grasp of not just film history but filmmaking history. Yeah, like making those movies, the Busby Berkeley movies, where it's like the overhead shot of the water, yeah. and the, the fins and coming out of the water in a perfect shape, all those things, and the the dialogue from like these uh, cowboy movies is. It sounds hokey in the movie, but if you're watching one of those movies, you'd actually be wrapped up in the story, and it would have that exact same dialogue. Well, and that's the thing is is so I view the film as, among other things, uh, a defense of art. Mm-hmm. In this case, movies, but art in general. There are a lot of people that think art is a luxury, that it is superfluous, and that it is unnecessary, that it's just like, hey, all right, that's great, but that in the end, it's not a thing that is required for survival. And strictly speaking, it is not, but it does make life m- worth living, I would say. Uh, and this is, I think, a film that that in ways that I'll talk about in a moment, but it is a defense of the movies. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of movies that have done this. Um, George Clooney actually directed a film called uh, The Monuments Men, which bothered me tremendously. I didn't, there was a lot of stuff I didn't like about that movie, but chief, uh, the, the chief aspect that I didn't like was that, and that's not about movies. That's about just the importance of art. Uh, you have characters talking about paintings and sculptures and stuff like that. And you have just one monologue after another of people talking about how important art is. I'm like, Oh, uh, art is the culture. If you lose art, you lose, you know, all of the culture of a society. And to me, that almost smacked of the reason that I don't like Sean Penn as an actor. Uh, with a couple of exceptions here and there, I feel like he's always acting really hard. Yep, he is. Almost like with the force of his performance, he's trying to convince you that he's doing a real job. As if to say, like, look, I'm not a coal miner, but look how hard I'm acting. This is, t- you guys, this is hard too. I'm. D- this is very hard. Yes, I know I'm paid really well. Yes, I know I have two, a- uh, two Oscars. But look how hard I'm acting. And I feel in in that same way, George Clooney, who I know is a a very socially conscious person and probably there might be a certain, and comes from a Hollywood family, uh, he might feel a little bit as though, oh, I could be doing more. I could be doing more for this world. So many other people are. So what can I do? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's like, no, making art is important and I should remind other people and myself of that. So I'll make this movie, The Monuments Men. But it just look it smacks to me of desperation. Hmm. Whereas Hail Caesar, the reason it works as a defense of movies and a defense of art is because we see so much of it. It's it to me. It's it's like uh, you know uh, a movie in which a character is a great composer, a great musician, uh, and then you hear their songs or the songs that that somebody else wrote but it's supposed to be the character that wrote the song and it's completely forgettable. And you just think like, maybe this guy should quit, you know, 
as opposed to like Inside Lewin Davis, where uh, some of those songs, I believe some of those songs are original, some are not, but all of them are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to make a movie about art, and especially one that's going to defend art, then you better show it. You better show what you're defending. And it needs to be done well. And even if these movies are cheesy, they need to be done well. They need to be done with affection. And they need to be done in a, in a sense of... The other aspect that I that I like by having so many of them is that you don't like this one, maybe you like this one. You don't like that one, maybe you like this one. There's a lot of different types of film and a lot of different types of art that you might feel engaged by. You don't have to embrace all of them, but there might be one that hits you a very specific mm-hmm. way, so keep looking. And the film has so much of that. It almost feels like that's entertainment. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, one clip after another. Yeah. And, and it's a celebration... It's a defense that doesn't feel like a defense because it is first and foremost a celebration. And if you're celebrating something, there's, I think it might not seem like it, but I think there's an inherent defense of that thing. Cause why else would you be celebrating it? Hmm. Um, and, and that's why they needed to get those things right. And even if, even if they're kind of poking fun at them a little bit, to me, I feel like they're poking fun at it, but because it's done with affection, I look at it and think, yeah, these these films are kind of silly, but how many people in the future will look back on our superhero movies and how important those were to us and one origin story after another that right. we just pay, shell out tons of money for? How many people in the future will look at that and say, that's ridiculous? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always, you know, there's always that potential. Um, and so, yeah, those, while I do respond to the Eddie character, the world around him needs to feel authentic and the better they are with that dialogue, the better they are with those titles, the more authentic it feels. And the more legitimate, uh, the more uh, legitimized uh, Eddie Mannix's life becomes in that moment. Um, okay, sorry, I went off uh, on a rant there. I apologize. No, I, I, I don't want to necessarily counter that fully. But even now, looking back on the movie, no, I, I do believe that it's a defense of art, a mm-hmm. very... It, it, it feels weird to say that it is when I don't know that that's, that was their intention. I think they really do have a fondness, a DNA level fondness for that kind of movie because it's what they grew up on. Sure. It's like if, it's almost like, a, like Tim Burton making Ed Wood. Yeah. And or anything Tarantino makes these days. Yeah. There's no one that's going to say that Plan 9 from Outer Space is a great movie or that it represents yeah. art. It represents a certain sub-level, yeah. literally sub-level of a, a genre. And uh, Tim Burton loves uh, the director of, of Plan 9. Ed Wood. Ed Wood. <laughs> oh, it's the name of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Ed Wood. So he loves uh, Ed Wood's story so much. And he mm-hmm. loves the fact that Ed Wood was sort of an outcast and an outsider, a misfit. Like he feels like he is, that he's yeah. going to make a movie that really shines a light, not only on how cheeseball the movie was, but but really underneath that, who the person was that made it. Yeah. And why the movie is valuable because of the person's life that that movie came from. Um, and so it's less, I feel like Ed Wood, while itself is a great movie, mm-hmm. um, is less about art and defending art as it is defending the artist. Yeah, or and the th- or the instinct to make art. The instinct to make art, even. Um, and if anything, I think. Ooh, if anything, I think this movie is more like that. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's a nuance, I know, but because uh, it's still defending art in a sense. But but the cowboy movie that Hobie is starring in at the you know when we yeah. first meet him um, is sort of like Plan Nine from Outer Space of the cowboy world. It's sure. like you know, guy on a you know a shoot a shootout b- b- behind uh, boulders. You know, he whistles for his horse. The horse, Whitey, come over, and yeah. the horse come, and he jumps on it from behind. You know, and like, and he's off into the sunset. It's yeah. like that's the mo- one of the most cliche images you've seen a billion yeah. times in those movies. Um, but it's the it's the people that are making it, mm-hmm. and this gets back to what the movie was really about, which is Eddie Mannix and the director yeah. of that movie and his real life and why he's there and the decisions that Eddie Mannix has to make in order to keep these things going, and should he keep them going ultimately decides he should mm. just like ed wood is has this passion for making movies it doesn't matter who hates them yeah. it doesn't matter what people say about him so yes it's a defense of art um and to me it feels more like a defense of artists and i know there's sure. a nuance but um i think where i arrive at the larger uh, both obviously um but i think when I, I i arrive at the defense of art itself i think is when you when you look at, I looked at my own instinct anytime I heard the guy from Lockheed talk about film. Mm. He's so dismissive of it. Right. And he's dismissive of the business. Even, and he might even, he's probably right about the business, mm-hmm. but he also talks about how frivolous it is. Yep. And bunch of kooks. Bunch of kooks. And he, admittedly, he's correct. But the way that he's so dismissive of it. And then he talks about, well, what I'm doing, what we're doing at Lockheed, that's real work. That's important work. Mm, Serious. It's serious Serious work, work, like a serious man. Mm. Um, And so I feel like when you look at him and the way Josh Brolin responds to him, like just in his face, like he kind of tenses a little bit or, or I guess wince, like he winces at the idea that this thing that he loves somebody else could devalue. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. The guy in that moment has a, has respect for Eddie Mannix. So one could make an argument that in that moment he has respect for the artist and, and the instinct to make art, but the thing itself is frivolous, so who cares? You you should turn that instinct, well, he's that more, passion towards something else. He's more after his, uh, his management skills. Yeah. Whether it could be anywhere, according yeah. to him. He's like, well, you're doing this here, you know, for all these odd, he calls them oddballs and, and uh, misfits, actually. Yeah. Um, all these oddballs and misfit, misfits, why don't you do that for us? It's more respectable, it's serious. Look, we're making yeah. the bomb. That's yeah. important, you know, yeah. if that's indeed important. You ever heard of the Bikini Atoll? You know, he says to him, <laughs> here's a picture of an A-bomb going off there. Yeah. Um, come help us do this. Yeah, so he's 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 definitely after a quality of Eddie Mannix that Eddie Mannix yeah. is utilizing to, for purposes that this guy yeah. thinks are ridiculous. Yeah, and when we see the conclusion that Eddie comes to and... The, his little monologue to George Clooney, because not only is the Lockheed guy undercutting the importance of art and the importance of film, but you also have the future. You you have the communists yeah. talking about how this thing is only important insofar as we can use it to deliver a message. Mm-hmm. But the thing itself is is hollow yep. and pointless and bad unless we can turn it into something more important. They like, believe. What was that? Go ahead. Well, they they believe as writers. You know, we'll get back to this in a little bit more yeah. more about the writers. But they believe that you know the use of the studio is quite all right. They're they're yeah they're almost like like the Lockheed guy in that they don't really have a whole lot of faith in the thing itself. Yeah, it's more uh, a conduit for 
for getting what they want or, like you said, spreading a message. Yeah. Um, and in that regard, they are very similar to the Christian film industry. Absolutely. Well, I like the, I like what... Uh, the, the, I actually read the script, and reading the script, it felt a lot more um, cohesive to me, and I was able to kind of pick up on certain things, like yeah. connections. Like, for instance, uh, when the Lockheed guy, whose name I can't remember now, um, Lockheed guy is offering the job to Mannix, and he says, you know, you're, you're like, lording it over all these misfits and whatnot. You're, you know, you're, your world is a world of make-believe. Of course they're a bunch of kooks. It's, it's make-believe. Yeah. Um, Cut to later, you're you're hanging out with a writer of communist guys, and they they're talking about economics. Yeah, which they say it's not make believe. They actually use that phrase, and it's not make believe. It's real. It's reality. It's what yeah. we can use to predict the future, and this is how we're going to conquer the world, basically. And I, I love those those little connections. Yeah, and probably although I don't remember, probably in that conference room scene. When the clerics are talking about it, probably somebody in there says something about make-believe or reality or yeah. this is what's most important. Because, again, going back to the fact that I think this movie structurally is about uh, shining a light a little bit on different institutions in our culture. Sure. And ones that we hold in high esteem that are actually, you know, for, because it's still people populating those no. institutions, it's going to be completely flawed. Yeah. There's, uh, there's kooks successful. in every institution, it's not all just kooks. the one. We're all kooks. Um, but getting back to the writers and the fact that they're uh, they're all communists, it's I I'm fascinated by the whole Hollywood ten mm. bit, you know, and having just seen Trumbo uh, recently about Donald Trump, uh, uh, Dalton Trumbo. You said Donald Trump. Do, ooh, I, I said Donald Trumbo. I was yeah. about to. Yeah. Um, let's not make this too political. Yeah, Why I'm are not you talking I, about communism. Indeed, I have let's not seen fascism. I've not seen Trumbo. What did you think? It didn't look very good to me. Um, I, I liked it because of what I'm saying now. Which is okay. I'm, I'm fascinated by that world, um, yeah. that, that era of Hollywood as reflected through those people who were suffering because they were accused of being communists or they were, they were being punished because they weren't outing people that they knew were communists. Yeah. So, and all this is like meted out in this movie and one great small Woody Allen movie called um, The Front, mm-hmm. where he plays a front for a bunch of blacklisted writers in that era in the early 1950s. Um, and, but this movie takes that, that idea and the very serious nature of all these men who are ostracized for beliefs that they either had or did, but should not have been ostracized for. And the sympathy that you feel for those guys and mm-hmm. the sympathy that, especially living here in Hollywood as a writer, you hear about a lot and you do feel for those guys. It's like, oh, wow. For, for their beliefs, they were kicked out of the entire system. This in America, how, how could this have happened? And in this movie, it turns, it turns it completely on its head. And this room full of like a dozen, 15 writers, and they're all just like very casually communist. Yeah. And they're all trying to just use the system in order to get their, their message spread. Yeah. And I just find that I didn't expect, I didn't know that's what that was going to be part of the movie when I went in. Um, and when it hit me, I was like, oh, that's going to be really offensive to a lot of people here in this town. Yeah. But like within seconds, I was like enjoying it because it was just a funny take. It was like, yeah. well, of course there would have actually been... At that time, communists who were, or writers who were communists, directors who were communists, yeah. accountants who were communists. In, so, in some ways, it was, it, it was very chic uh, to consider yourself. And they probably wouldn't have used the word, the, the term socialist, which actually, again, not to get too political, right now is kind of a, a chic word. thing to say. Yeah. You, would never, you will distance yourself all day from the word communist, sure. but you'll say socialist. And I think back then, it was probably the opposite. Hmm. You'd say communist because, like, well, I mean, they're the only ones that care about their workers and blah, blah, blah. I just love the fact that the movie, a movie that 
uh, one of the strikes against it for me and se- seemingly for a lot of people is the fact that it kind of drops a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. You said, well, if you earlier, if you go into it as a, as looking for an ensemble movie, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, and that's because, I don't know if we directly uh, said this, but it's because so many characters just kind of drop off the face of the movie. Um, Scarlett Johansson's character is kind yeah. of sidelined. Uh, uh, the director of of the musical that Channing Tatum is in is kind of sidelined. Even right. the whole communist thing is a little sidelined, given how big a thing it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to make fun of all these writers from that era as actually being communists, you kind of want to make a, a whole movie about that. I, I would watch a whole movie about that. Sure. Um, Admittedly, that one does vein. that one does come to a peak, uh, and it is a say. big ridiculous peak. Like there's definitely a button put on that. That's exactly which is what that I was going to say. They're communists to the point that they. <laughs> That they row boats out into the middle of the ocean to meet a Soviet submarine. Exactly. Like, it's ridiculous. No, that's what I was going to say was that it, it actually, of all the ones that, that it sort of drops or remains sidelined, that's the one that, that does come to a head. Yeah. Um, what I like about that scene, though, and I don't know how much we weren't really want to spoil stuff. I mean... I, I'm fine with it. Um, not that what I'm about to say is a spoiler, but I keep thinking that, so I thought I'd say mm-hmm. it. Um, they have... A dog, and I forget whose dog it was, in the rowboat. I think it's Channing Tatum. It's Channing Tatum. So yeah. Channing Tatum is the one, he's like the leader of the communists, you find out. Yeah. Of the course, so what is a spoiler? That um, you find out, of the course, the movie, he's actually the head of the communist group that, that we see throughout the movie. And he's the one that's getting on the submarine to go back to Russia to be like the, the, the communist, man, communist man or whatever it was. Yeah. Representative of communism to the world. And the dog in the rowboat, whose dog it's his dog mm-hmm. of course wants to go with him so he leaps over the other riders and toward Channing Tatum who's now carrying a, a satchel or a briefcase and attache full of like maybe $100,000 or something and he this is just a personal thing for me why I like this moment but he drops the attache full of all this cash into the water so that he can take his dog to Russia and yeah. it's just funny to me that it's kind of a sweet moment that he cares more for his dog than he does for the riches yeah. and maybe that's just to kind of put a button as you say on the, the whole ethos of communism. It's like, you know, it's not about money. It's about things. It's about whatever. It's communism interesting. Not. The way I saw it was uh, these writers literally kidnap somebody and risk imprisonment to get money to send with him back to Russia. And he chose his dog over all of them. Yeah. Uh, like they could and, uh, and likely will go to jail all of them because of what they did all for him. And in the end he chooses his dog, which yes, might be tender, but he, uh, like a dozen people are going to jail now. Yep. Um, we don't see that scene because that would kind of spoil the movie. Right. Right. Uh, but there's a scene uh, we were talking about, like, are, are we, are we offended or should we be offended by the fact that the main movie is, is a, you know, a Christ movie yeah. from that era. And there's a moment that is the most potentially offensive. Mm-hmm. And that's when they're setting up to shoot a shot and yeah. there's a figure on the cross. You don't see anything but the feet of. Yeah. So we're behind the cross, low, so you just see the feet. And it's some kid that's playing like one of the thieves or maybe he's even Jesus. I, I think he might be Jesus. Might be Jesus. Um, and the AD is coming by, you know, like head, headphones, clipboard. And he's looking up at the guy and he says something like, are you, are, are you, I don't know, are you an... He's looking at his clipboard, but talking to Jesus on the cross, and he says, yeah. are you an extra or a, or a principal? Because he's not featured in this yeah. movie. They make a point of that, that he's not actually going to be seen in the movie. It's all yeah. about the Roman soldier. Um, so, 
and then on the heels of that, he says, oh, and also, uh, do you get a hot, hot breakfast or a box breakfast? <laughs> okay, cool. And he checks a box and he moves on and then the scene proper begins. And it's like, it's, it's comedy. It's pure comedy. Yeah. It's like Life of Brian comedy. It's yeah. like, but it's not really Jesus. It's like several, you know, layers away from the actual Jesus. It's, yeah. it's a kid, clearly. You only see his feet. It's an AD. It's a movie set in the 50s and a movie that's not even about that. Yeah. So it's hard to get offended by this. And you yeah, don't I think get so. A, you don't get a sense that the Coen brothers are like, let's, let's find ways that we can make fun of Jesus or God or, or yeah. religion even. That I mean, feels, as big as that is, that feels beneath them. Yeah. Like that's something a lesser filmmaker would do. However, that brings me to, actually, I forgot I was going to say this, but there are a couple of things that, that make me disappointed. And one of them is, uh, this is just generally in movies. It's when someone, like a, a writer-director is smart, and you know they're smart, mm-hmm. or a writing-directing team is smart in this case, and they, they go for a joke mm-hmm. that you feel like is like way beneath them. Yeah. And up to that point, these are it's still smart. And then Clooney has that moment where he's really delivering this speech. It's like the climax of the movie, and, oratorically. Um, and he's going through it and it's actually kind of moving because yeah. Clooney is like bringing his actual acting skills yeah. to bear. And you moment. see that like the crew members are also being affected yeah, by what Yeah, it cuts away to saying. these guys and they're all like kind of standing up from their chairs like, oh, he's really nailing this. Um, that's the crass version. But then there's other people like his co- co-actor in the scene who looks like he's not acting, looks like he's actually yeah. reacting to this great acting next to him and to the words he's saying. Um, and then he forgets his line. Yeah. And then he's swearing because he forgets his line. And I'm not against swearing in movies, obviously. But it feels like a cheap joke for me. It just feels like the Coen brothers stooping to the level of like a forgotten line in this kind of movie and then swearing and throwing down a script or whatever just doesn't feel like them. It feels like somebody said, hey, you should do this. It'll be funny. And they did it and now they're stuck with it. It's so interesting. Um, Yeah, I took it a different way, Hmm. which is the, uh, okay, a few things. Number one, Mm -hmm. back when I was, uh, when I would write uh, skits for like my church, Uh, I found that there was a specific formula that seemed to work, which was you have a character who gets very close to to the truth Hmm. and then rejects it one way or another. They might be, they might be Christian, they might not be, but whatever it is, they get close to doing what they're supposed to do. They get close to completing their arc. And then at the last minute, they don't. Um, it worked dramatically and it worked comedically. Sure, that that's, um, uh, that goes all the way back to Sophocles, or you know. Oh, no, watch out! You know, it's like it's like a basic tenet of, of drama is like the the reversal. Yeah, if and you will. I, I feel like it. Is it Sophocles? Oh, I wouldn't know. Uh, Aristotle. I feel like it was maybe like a David Mamet. Anyway, oh. um, <laughs> because I thought, and it seemed to be the case that. If somebody, especially like in a, you know, a four minute skit at church where everybody already agrees with the premise of the skit to have somebody learn a lesson and then everything's over, it's like, all right, that's fine. What a nice little skit. Whereas I feel like for the character to reject the thing that the people in the audience want him to accept, uh, I feel like it engages them more and they feel, they feel a certain degree of frustration. Uh, And maybe I'm being too lofty when I say this, but maybe they start to look at their own lives and wonder, well, wait a minute, where, where do I do this? Where do I get frustratingly close to doing what God wants me to do only to reject it at the last minute for what's more convenient? Uh, but whatever, like whatever the case may be, uh, people seem to respond to those. And so mm. in that way, uh, 
the fact that he is that Clooney's character, sorry, that the the actor that Clooney plays and then the character that the actor plays, yes. that they both seem to be getting this thing. They both seem to be understanding the importance of Christ and that sort of thing. Uh, and then forget it at the last minute. Uh, yes, it is. It's a comedic beat and it does take you out of the scene and he swears immediately, but it is worth noting. What is the word he forgets? It's the very last faith. word of his monologue faith. Yeah. So it's interesting to me and I don't think it is a, I don't think it's like an indictment of the faithful or anything like that, but it's worth noting that, that all of the stuff that he's saying, it may be really nice and all that, but it doesn't mean anything if you leave faith out. This is true. So, uh, and leave it to you to find more than one lesson in that. Watch scene. out. Uh, and that's the, and I will say this when I look at, when I look at what I just said, mm-hmm. part of me feels like, don't you think you're reading too much into it? It's the Coen brothers. I don't think I am. Uh, I think of all the words that he forgets, it's that one. And yes, forgetting that word of all words is funny, but I think it's also, uh, I think, I feel like there's a deeper thing. I think thing it's one there. of those things where I'm, I'm going to have to go on my own faith, if you will. Watch out. And, and on paper, it works. Mm-hmm. Even when I read it in the script, like I said, uh, I read the script, and when I got to that point, I was like, oh, that's funny. I think it's the execution. Some, something about the execution, I have to, to mm-hmm. see it again. It reminds me of a moment in Woody Allen's already forgotten movie from a couple of years ago called Magic in the Moonlight, where, uh, who's King's Speech guy? What's his name? Colin Firth. Colin Firth is in it. And uh, set in the 40s, 30s or 40s or 20s, I don't know. I've already forgotten it, clearly. But there's a scene where, toward the end, where there's like this huge tragedy that's happened or something is about to be tragic and he doesn't want it to be tragic. So he's, and he's like this, uh, the whole movie sets him up as this atheist and he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in any kind of magic, doesn't believe in any kind of faith. Suddenly he's, he's faced with this problem where he, the only place he can turn to is God. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting at the table in the hospital or wherever it is and he has this really long prayer to God, which is one of those sort of cliche kind of things where it's like, God, I know I don't talk to you that often, but I hope you're listening to me now, that kind of thing. And he goes in this really heartfelt prayer mm-hmm. um, for maybe two and a half minutes or so. He just goes on and on, and you're with him. And especially as a believer, knowing Woody Allen's movies as much as I do, and knowing what I should be expecting... I'm stunned that he's allowing a character to get to this point. Yeah. And then right toward the end of the prayer, Colin Firth kind of sees himself sitting at the table, kind of has a self-aware moment and looks around. And he's like, what am I doing? This is yeah. idiotic. There's no God. And then just kind of walks away and cuts in the next scene. So it's like Woody Allen basically saying, okay, maybe there is a place for, for this kind of groping out for something else. Everyone, yeah. uh, humanity as a whole, you as an individual have those moments. Yeah. And, but it's for nothing. It's still, there's still no God. Right. And that worked for me as, as a, as a reversal, if you will, mm-hmm. because it's like, that makes sense because of who Woody Allen is and all of his body of work and all of his questioning, always ending up at that same place. That made sense to me. But the Coen brothers kind of go in that same route, even though all of what you just said makes sense. And I buy it mm-hmm. on paper, but in the execution of it, following a, a Coen brothers movie up to that point where it's so smart all the way up to that point, it just feels like not their kind of joke. But I'm not going to belabor that too much. It doesn't seem, I'll, I'll agree that it doesn't seem like their kind of joke. But at the same time, I've seen them do comedies where sometimes the 
and I'm not saying the joke, I wouldn't say the joke is necessarily obvious. It just doesn't seem like them, but they've done jokes in the past that doesn't seem that, that don't seem like them. Um, and I'm okay with it. And I do feel like there's definitely a thematic importance there. Um, and maybe they led with that, which is not a thing I usually like, but, uh, but I thought it, I thought it worked. I didn't, I, I, the people in my theater laughed a lot at that. And, and I saw it with Jen and she laughed a lot at that. I didn't yeah, find was, it that was laughter where I was like, I didn't find it that funny, but I, I was focused on the, the thematics of it. Sure. Um, so, uh, so I'm trying to think if there's anything else that, you know, worth talking about as far as the film itself. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff that I responded to about it uh before we move on to a, a more thematic discussion i mean there's there's i agree with you there's more but I, we should probably move on okay so you know and we've already touched on it quite a bit which is when we look at the when we look at the um the comments said by the the lockheed guy as we're calling him now um and then we look at how the the communists are talking about art as merely a means to an end. And then he's talking about it as frivolous. Like very few, like there are characters that literally do not see the inherent value of art. And it's worth noting that to me, the character of Eddie Mannix is so fascinating because why does he go to the priest over and over again? Why does he feel so guilty over sneaking a cigarette? He's not cheating on his wife. He lo- he clearly loves his wife mm-hmm. and has a great deal of affection for her and wants to be with her. Like he is a family man in in an industry that is like pure hedonism. Right. And he's a religious guy in an industry that is not. Uh and so like why does he feel so bad? And I think it's because when you doubt the value of what you are a good at and b spending all your time on. If you're doubting the value of that, then every single moment that you spend on that, you'll feel like you're doing something wrong and you will feel a need to like, you'll feel guilty and you'll feel the need to, in his case, confess. And even the priest himself is like, come on, man, like it's, it's fine. You don't, you don't need to do this. Uh, and I feel like, I feel like that is a thing that, that, uh, that I've talked about on the show and that Christians themselves will sometimes fall into, uh, certainly the Christian community will that. And I think we're getting away from it a little bit more now, but even then it's, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, if you're called to the ministry, whether it be missionary work or being a pastor or whatever it is, that is a good and holy calling. And then under that, it's like, okay, well, there's lifesavers. There's, you know, doctors, firefighters, police officers, you know, maybe even lawyers or politicians. Like, okay, those are those are big jobs that make a difference, mm-hmm. you know. Anything beyond that, it's all right. You, you know, you make your money and then uh, pay your tithe and give to charity and that's, and then, uh, be a good husband and that's, or, or be a good, uh, wife or whatever it is. Um, and so it was clear that like, there was definitely a, a, a I don't know, there was a sort of a caste system, uh, as far as occupation or even just passion, the things that you spend your time on. Uh, and I feel like up until recently, um, movies and maybe even art in general in the modern church were sort of denigrated. Um, and I don't know if they would use words like frivolous, but there's definitely, 
and this might be the case just in general. Like if you ever tell, you know, your parents, Hey, I, I think I want to go out to Hollywood and be a writer or something like that. You'll, you'll discover, you know, and they'll probably try to talk you out of it pretty quickly. But, um, but in the church, there's a spiritual connotation to it, which is, well, you know, okay, that's it, like, at best. It's okay. Yeah, that's fine. You know, they, unless of course you decide you want to turn your, your art into a ministry in which case, okay, well now you're, you said the word ministry. So now, now God is going to bless what Mm -hmm. you're doing. And now God is okay with, with the choices that you've made. Um, and yeah, it's a thing that I, that I come to over and over again. I myself, I don't question the, the validity of art, but there are a lot of people that question the validity of critics. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I feel like probably once a month on Facebook, somebody will post that freaking that Teddy Roosevelt quote. Oh, I don't you know, know the one I'm talking. No. Oh man. Okay. I don't have it in what front did of Teddy me. Say? Just something like, you know, it's not the, I believe he says like, it's not the critic who counts or, you know, it's the guy you know, who runs the race, not the guy who sits on the sidelines and judges the guy who runs the race. And it's like, okay, I get what you're saying there. But at the same time, and and a lot of people will throw that out there and people are often very, uh, quick to say, Hey, whatever a critic says, I just do the opposite. (laughs) And as I've said on the show before, it's like, Oh, that's great. I'm sure exec uh, movie executives love that. Uh, that's, that is definitely a mindset that they would want to encourage. I would say that they're reading the wrong critics. I would say that they're reading critics wrong. Ah. Ah. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, and it's a frustrating thing, and it's something that I do run across a lot in the Christian community is that, like, you know, these critics are trying... I've I've, uh, I've actually read this in a lot of places. Like, oh, they're just trying to make themselves sound smart. Mm. Uh, You know, they have no respect for religion in general, and... They have no idea what real people, what regular people like and blah, blah, blah. They're just, they're just snobs and all this kind of thing. And that could, that is potentially true, but that doesn't mean that a critic has no value. Uh, and I don't devalue the importance of critics, but it's, it's difficult when you feel like society has no use for you. And when you feel like in the, in the long run, what, what purpose do you serve? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I feel like God has called me to this and I think it's a, and I've followed it and I'm excited to do it. Sure. And a lot of good things have come about from it. But when I look at, you know, like you, who is a writer, you know, you're the one that's actually making the art. I'm simply standing back and saying, eh, thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, which admittedly is not what I'm doing, but that's, that's kind of how I think of it sometimes. Um, and I think, you know, if, if art is frivolous, art criticism, how much more useless is that? Um, and so what I wanted to talk about, uh, I'll, I'll use that to get us into the companion film, which we'll talk about very briefly, which is a film that I only saw recently, which is Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels, which came out in 1941, uh, stars Joel McRae and Veronica Lake, who is on the take. Uh, apparently, based on what the poster has said. Uh, is that what the poster says? Yeah. On the take? Veronica Lake is on the take. I don't, what does that even mean in the I don't context even, of the movie? I don't even know. On the take. But like, if you look at the poster, like it is, it has like an image of Veronica Lake and says Sullivan's Travels. And it's like, you guys, look, I recognize that you need to use the pretty girl to sell it. Um, although Veronica Lake is shockingly short. Is well, she he's, like he's pretty tall too? Is that what it is? Yeah, okay. he's tall and she's short. So because she looks like she's three seven, yeah, or she's, something like she that. She looks very small in this movie. But um, 
yeah. So Sullivan's Travels is a film, like again, I, I knew what it was about. It's about this this director, a very successful director of comedy, mm-hmm. uh, who feels like he is, and nobody's telling him this. This is all coming from him. He feels that, yeah, yeah, I'm very successful and people seem to like my comedies, but I'm not doing anything important. I want to make a movie about people that are in trouble. I want to make a movie about poverty. And of course, the name of the movie he wants to make is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. Which the Coen brothers would then go on to make. Um, though it is a comedy, it should be noted. Uh, and so he decides he's going to go out into the world. He's going to have a maybe a single dime in his pocket, but he's going to be in the world of the homeless, and he's going to see what it's like so that he can uh, so that he can make one of these movies. And over the course of the film, he discovers that, you know what? Some people he 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 winds up coming to a conclusion that that sometimes I've found dubious in the past, but as I've gotten older, I've come to really value, which is sometimes film and art is an escape, and it might for some be the only escape you have. It could be reading a book. Uh, it could be going to see a comedy. Uh, and it's just like, and if people don't, you know, uh, there's, I, I wrote down a, a quote in the notes here. He says, there's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan, which mm-hmm. is a uh, Preston Sturgis all over. Yep. But, um, yeah. So, over the course of the film, he he learns the value of what he of what he of what he actually does, you know, um, to the point that even when people say, "Hey, uh, you can make a brother art thou now," and he's like, "I think I'm going to go back to comedies." Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I only saw it recently. Uh, when are you familiar with Sullivan's Travels? You seem yeah, to be. I, I I've seen it a couple of times, uh, a few times actually, and the most recent was probably only about four days ago. In preparation for this, I would assume, or just a coincidence. It was on the calendar. No, I, yeah, for preparation for this. Um, are you a fan of Sullivan's Travels? I'm a fan of Sullivan's Travels. I'm a fan of Preston Sturges. I love him as a f- figure in film history. Um, I love the movie. Um, although it, it's it's a it's a little tricky to try to sell <clears throat> sell the idea of watching this movie by a guy who makes comedies, yeah. who is essentially justifying his own career to you by yeah. watching the movie um, or by having made the movie. Um, but I think it's, there's an earnestness again yeah. in the movie that is, it's well earned by the time it gets to the point, it sounds a little chintzy and shallow in the telling here mm-hmm. that he comes to that conclusion. Oh, everything I've been doing by making comedies is exactly what the world needs. Yeah. And I, the ma- maker of Sullivan's travels am telling you that it sounds a little chintzy just in the telling, but the, it's earned. Um, he actually does go through some really harrowing experiences as, yeah. uh, as a homeless person, mm-hmm. when people actually through the machinations of the, of the plot, he actually does become a person who is thought of as a homeless person. Yeah. Um, chain gang, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating movie as a movie about movies. Yeah. Um, and it's a, a fascinating movie about coming to terms with, with who you are and who, you, what you're best at. And you know, it's interesting. I feel like, what you're saying in that he, it, it, it could appear, and I know you're not saying this, but it could appear as though he's justifying his, his own existence. Uh, I feel like if everybody else was telling Sullivan, if everybody else was telling him comedy isn't important, drama is important. And then he's like, all right, I guess I'll try to make a, uh, uh, I'll try to make a drama, but first I should learn this. And then he comes to the conclusion, you know what? You're all wrong. Comedy is important. Then that looks defiant. Mm-hmm. It looks like I knew this the whole time. 
but I guess I'll go along with this. Nope, I was right. That looks like somebody trying to justify their own existence. Whereas by having everybody else value what he does, but he himself does not, I more than anything, I feel like this is a this is an internal struggle for Preston Sturgis, Absolutely. which is which is why it is earned. I that's think. the it's earned, and that's why that earnest muscle in the movie is so strong because yeah. because you do see a man who, and, and this has to be. I mean, I I mostly wrote comedy stuff for a long, long time. Yeah, and then it's only been recently that I've tried to write anything quote unquote serious or like a drama, um, and I found that I'm okay at it. But my heart feels like it needs to go back to that. Yeah. Because I, I just, I, lo- I, I like living in, in that tone more in comedy. Yeah. Um, I think that just like the Coen brothers are doing in this movie, as per our conversation now, you know, there's a lot to be had from comedies if you want it to. You don't have to be um, just all slapstick or anything, but it can, it can actually have themes that resonate with you, the person. And I believe that uh, that same feeling that I had when I went into writing these dramas is the same feeling that Preston Sturgis probably had when he came up with this idea. Yeah. It's like, I'm, surely, I want to be taken seriously. It's like Woody Allen when he made Interiors. Mm-hmm. And I started to always go back to Woody Allen, but here he's, he made all these drama, all these uh, just slap, slap, slapstick comedies, essentially, those first five or six. Smart still, but very broad. Mm-hmm. And he says, let's make a, he made Annie Hall, which is sort of the bridge to stuff we know now. But then right after Annie Hall was Interiors, this straight up drama. Yeah. And you know, it's got its merits, but it's weird in his body of work because there's not a single laugh in it. Well, it's very Bergman, right? Like very, that's Bergman, the idea. very much his idea of being Bergman. And, yeah. and Bergman is not a uh, laugh riot no. by any stretch. And I think, oh, oh, brother, where art thou in Sullivan's Travels, which is the script that he's trying to get these producers to say yeah. yes to, um, is his interiors. It's like, I want to be taken seriously. I want people to know that I'm not just a joke machine or a slapstick machine. And I, I'm certain that Preston Sturges had that feeling. Sure. And in working out, I mean, he wrote the script for this. So in working out that emotion or that reservation about himself, he came to the conclusion, not through the same means that Sullivan did, mm-hmm. surely not, but certainly by means of talking to people, uh, getting people's opinions on what he had done, yeah. getting his opinion on other people's opinion on what he might want to do drama-wise, um, et cetera, he comes to the conclusion that what I do isn't really that bad. I mean, it's yeah. it's making, A, it's making money for Paramount. Yeah. I mean, I'm the highest grossing movies of the last few years for uh, for Paramount, so they're patting me on the back. Um, and they're, they're critically praised yeah. movies, so they're loved, and the audiences are coming to them, and they love me, and they love the movie, so I'm not doing anything wrong. So let me find merit beyond just the the money making potential of these comedies. Let's actually find out why it is that they're doing well, and it's because, uh, as Sullivan finds out, Preston Sturges finds out the same way. Yeah. That there's merit to to them. There's there's as long as you're making the right kind of comedy, obviously, like he was uh, up to that point, and then beyond it, he made like six or eight in a row that mm-hmm. that were just all smash hits over the course of about five or six years. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, and. Again, like this, this speaks to his power as a writer and director is that as I come away from it, not only did it not feel like he's trying to justify his own existence, but though this is never actually said at no point towards the end, like the quote I just read where it talks about the value of, of making people laugh, uh, at no point did I get the impression that he feels that it is more valuable than drama. 
I think he came to the conclusion that I don't make drama. Yeah. I make comedy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Were I to make drama, there'd be nothing wrong with that. We all have our thing to do, and we just need to do it to the best of our ability. It's interesting. Just thinking about Preston Surges himself mm-hmm. and the correlations between him, this movie, and the movie we just talked about. Um, here's a guy who, you know, he was a Broadway playwright, mm-hmm. very successful. And he was called to Hollywood, much like Barton Fink. Yeah. And so... and opposite of Barton Fink, he actually makes movies right away yeah. that are making money. He's like writing scripts for other directors. He's unhappy with the work that they're doing on his scripts. And so he talks Paramount into buying his script, uh, The Great McGinty, for mm-hmm. 10 bucks. He says, I'll sell it to you for 10 bucks if you let me direct it. They say, fine, go. And he yeah. says, you know, if I fail, I fail, then I'll go back to just writing. And it, it becomes like this huge smash success. He makes that movie, he makes another movie, he makes another movie, he makes Sullivan's Travels, makes three or four more broad comedies, or big comedies. And then uh, he does indeed try to make a drama. Mm-hmm. He makes a drama called um, the, the Great Moment. It's after a string of like huge successes with like six or eight comedies. And he makes this movie, and it's a huge flop. Yeah. It's a huge flop. And then he, now he's sort of like, he'd already kind of moved on from Paramount, or that was like the last thing that he had to do for Paramount by his contract. And now he's hooking up with, with uh, Howard Hughes. Hmm. Aviation. It's like, you know, he took the bait from the aviation guy yeah. and said, here's some money. Uh, who said, here's some money. He took the money, and so he's trying to make movies, and none of them do well. Um, and so he's forgotten. By 1950, he's like washed up. Yeah. This poor guy. And it's all because, well, not because, but it just the trajectory was huge success, huge success, bigger success, bigger success, drama, failure. Yeah. And then he never recovered. And we're not, you know, and we're not talking about like, don't take a risk or anything like that, but it's more just, and who knows why he made that drama. If he made it because he genuinely wanted to make one, that's fine. But who knows? Maybe he fell prey to Sullivan, S- Sullivan syndrome yeah, of just self-doubt and not merely at this point, not merely making comedies and making good comedies, but being known for it, being famous for it, being very rich for it, mm-hmm. and having made so many of them, maybe even though he made this film, maybe he forgot it. And But maybe that's not true. Who knows? Uh, it's good to take a risk and see what else you might be good at and might be passionate about. But to denigrate what you, and so to bring you know God into this, <laughs> to denigrate what God has called you into... You know, I wrote an article about this on More Than One Lesson somewhat recently back in January um, that I used to, for a long time, I would actually make fun of the fact that God called me into film criticism around the time that uh, film criticism started to change and become uh, a job you can't actually get. Uh, it's it's still possible, but it's not super likely. Um, and I was getting kind of cynical about that, and I would sort of denigrate the job itself. Um, but then I just, I look at what God has, has done for this podcast and I would vent and with all humility through this podcast for other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized like I should stop denigrating what God has called me to do. Um, uh, now I wasn't denigrating the value of it as a, as a, as a concept, more just me specifically and what he was doing for me or not, or in my view, not doing for me. Um, but just, you know, it's, it's good to reassess where you are right now 
And there might be other people like in, in Hail Caesar, like the Lockheed guy, like the communists. There could be people that say what you're doing is frivolous. What you're doing is meaningless, mm-hmm. which will then take me to this passage from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 9 through 10. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. (laughs) For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, uh, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Now, uh, many Gee. people, many people find Ecclesiastes to be Jeez, a, a, a giant bummer, but there's also a certain degree of freedom in knowing that the things in the world are meaningless. Um, that the only meaning we can find is through God. If we are dealing with the eternal, then anything that is temporary will be meaningless. In my opinion, unless it's tapping into the eternal then it finds meaning. And so what I like is that, is that there might be somebody who by the world standard has a job or a passion. I keep saying job. It could be whatever. Um, they have the, a passion that other people might think is completely meaningless. But if those pe- and those people could have like super important jobs, they could be doctors, lawyers, whatever. Um, if those people aren't doing it, with the eternal in mind, if they're not doing it for the, you know, for the, the glory of God and as a way of, of tapping into God. And I don't mean turning it into a ministry. I just mean with a mind towards God has given me mm-hmm. this tremendous gift and I will do it to the best of my ability. If they're not doing with it with that, their job is also meaningless in an eternal sense. Um, and so the guy from Lockheed, and of course it is, it's worth noting that he's, you know, from the company that's making the bomb, which is horrendously destructive. So it's, it is definitely not meaningless, but his job is just as frivolous. What, what Eddie Mannix could be doing for Lockheed could be equally frivolous if you look at it in a different way. Um, and so, so on one side we have, uh, George Clooney being indoctrinated by the communists and, and being told that, that the the business is uh, frivolous and all that, and then on the other side you have Eddie Mannix being told by the Lockheed guy that what that the business is frivolous, and and George Clooney's character just buys right into it, uh, but Eddie having talked to Hobie and seen his humility, and then just seeing uh, the the day unfold the way that it has, uh, and then on top of everything else. Uh, going to the set of, of uh, Hail Caesar where there's the three crosses there. And so he does seem to be almost praying about this. And the conclusion that he comes to is that, uh, that there is value to this. And so when George Clooney tries to uh, tell uh, Eddie about the stuff that the communists told him, uh, Eddie responds in a way that is funny, but also, I find quite touching where he he slaps George Clooney in the face and he says, Hey, what we do has value. Now go out there and do some good work. And so, uh, yeah, so he winds up taking ownership of, of what he, what he has been at that point. I think I'm safe in saying what he has been called to do. And so 
there's a, a really, it's a really nice moment at the end and one that I think really puts a, a cap on the theme as a whole. And so, um, yeah, it's whatever it is. So listeners, whatever it is that you are doing that maybe other people don't value and maybe you you yourself don't, don't really value. Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase Sullivan here. Um, whatever it is, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. And it might actually be the only thing that people have. Hmm. Um, there have been moments f- uh, with this show where people have emailed in and uh, have said that from the standpoint of like being fans of film, but also having a mind towards God, it's kind of the only thing they have. It's the only thing that, that will challenge them in that way there are tons of books out there and there, there are, there are other podcasts out there as well. So there are other resources, but for a while, this is what kept them going, uh, in a, in a very specific regard. And so like, who am I to denigrate that? Um, and so hopefully listener, this is a, this is an encouragement to you. I don't know what it is you're doing, but if you are doing it, if if you are seeing it as an opportunity from God that you are seizing, as much as you can, you could be a teacher, you could be a plumber, you could be a fast food worker, you could be a painter, whatever it is. Um, or maybe it's not, maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you are a stay at home husband or wife, uh, or a father or mother or whatever it is. It could be taking care of your elderly parents or just a student. Um, whatever it is, it might seem unimportant. It might seem frivolous in the moment, but it's tapping into the one thing that has meaning if you do it right. So, uh, what do you mean? So don't write if you, when I say do it right, if you have the right mindset behind it, if you're doing it for God and thus doing it to the best of your ability, understanding of course, that you will fail from time to time, but there's forgiveness there. If you're doing it with that in mind, then it is not frivolous. It's the exact opposite of frivolous. And that is one of the great things about the gospel is that it is an equalizer and that the people, you know, first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that includes, uh, social status, mm-hmm. uh, and, and professional status and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, hopefully listener, you find this encouraging. Um, I love hail Caesar at the moment is my favorite movie of the year. Admittedly, I've only wow. seen seven movies. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's not really in theaters anymore. Uh, it might be depending on where you live, but if you haven't seen it, well, we spoiled everything for you, but but it's still worth seeing. Absolutely, and it's still funny. And it's still funny. So seek it out. And if you haven't seen Sullivan's Travels, that is uh, that recently got a nice release on the Criterion Collection, and that one is also definitely worth seeking out. So uh, I think we will go ahead and leave it there. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. You can also like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. Uh, Robert, where where can people find you online? Anywhere? You ask me this every time. I know. I always forget. I, and I always have the same answer. I kind of nowhere. Kind of like nowhere. A, you can email me blurm at yahoo.com. Oh my gosh, you're giving out your personal email. Why not? Now blurm, not being a word, uh, is difficult to spell. B L I R M. Okay. Now, where does that come from? I forget. I think you told me once. That's my. Uh, I drew a comic strip in in a college, and that was the main character of the comic strip. Okay, and so that is who you have decided to emulate in your everyday life, uh, or at least evoke. Perhaps we're the same. Whoa! Mm. You just blown my mind. Now I got to see this comic. Um, so yeah, uh, that uh, that is about it. Thank you everybody for listening, Robert. Thank you for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye.